0: All right, I'm going to read the passage and I'll come back and, of course, make commentary. It says here in verse one, now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved Hmm. whom that might be. John, thank you. And said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. And so they both ran together and came to the tomb. I'm sorry. And the other disciple ran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he stooping down and looking in saw the linen clothes lying there. Yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also and he saw and believed for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw the two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, For fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Notice, he doesn't say his feet. That's kind of interesting. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, Thomas called the twin. One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. And so he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and, and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have see, you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed and truly jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples Which are not written in this book But these are written that you may believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and believing you may have life in his name Great passage set before us Again set before us is not so much the story of the death of Jesus Christ, nor an empty tomb, but that of a risen Christ. How he conquered death and how he is so personal. How he seeks us out individually and deals with each and every one of us in our weaknesses. And he removes all doubt. As we approach this chapter, it is important to note that these events occurred over a period of eight days. Verses 1 through 23 deal with just one day, Resurrection Sunday. And verses 24 through 29, the rest of the week. And so let's look at the empty tomb. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 here. It says here, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark. Notice that. While it was still dark. And saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. Notice she was there early. Again, while it was dark. You know, I, I, I have great admiration for her. Because she comes out while it is dark. You know, for a lot of us, it's a hard thing to get up in the morning to seek a living God. And here she is, thinking he is dead. And she is up early, looking. And she, along with the other women that followed Jesus, are there to thoroughly complete the burial process since Joseph and Nicodemus were in a rush because of the Sabbath. And here we have, as it were, Mary Magdalene. She's an interesting woman found in the Bible. Her name means Mary of Magdala. Magdala means tower. And if you were to go to Israel today... Magdala resides in the upper western quadrant of the Tiberias. And to this day, there is a tower there, Magdala. Her name appears 12 times in the New Testament. And we we're first introduced to Mary Magdalene in Luke chapter 8, verse 2. And there we're told that she had been delivered from seven evil spirits. Not one, not two, not three, seven. She had been possessed. Mark 16, 9 tells us that Jesus first appears to Mary after the resurrection. She is the first one he sees. He didn't see Mary, his mother. He didn't see his brothers. He didn't even see the the disciples. It was Mary Magdalene. What a special privilege she had. And I wonder what that must have been like for Mary. As I really, as I thought about this passage What was that like for Mary being kept under the power of these seven evil spirits? You know, we're told in other passages, you know, we have glimpses of demon possession. Um, I don't know if you remember Mark 9, where here's a demon possessed person and he's constantly trying to throw this person into the water or throw him into the fire. So they have very little physical um, control. Now we're not told how she came under possession. We're not told how long she was under possession, but evidently she had opened herself up to, to possession at some point in her life. And I have no doubt that this still occurs today. I have no doubt in my mind. I think people around us in the world we live in are possessed by demons. I mean, look at the culture we live in folks. Uh, we have never been so open as a society or a culture to it. Look at the consumption of drugs, alcohol, abhorrent sexual promiscuity. It's at an all-time high. And as for Mary, what was that like for her? Being imprisoned in her own body under the control of evil spirits. You know, maybe she wanted to speak and they circumvented her ability to speak. Maybe she wanted to go somewhere And they wouldn't allow her to get there. They wouldn't allow her to to have a productive life. She had been in a very, very dark place. And how did the outside world see her? Oh, there goes Mary, Mary, quite contrary. Or there's Mary, the crazy one. And who knows what type of gestures or insults were hurled at her. She was living a life of absolute misery. And yet we're told in Luke chapter eight, verse two, that she had been healed of evil spirits out of whom seven spirits came out of out of. And that's an interesting Greek word because it speaks of a a separation or destruction of a relationship. Jesus had severed this symbiotic relationship. These evil spirits had with Mary. And there was no one on earth that could have helped her. And I mean, no one. This man comes on the scene. He sees her need and he delivers her. And Mary, for the first time in a long time, was truly free. No longer powerless. No longer under the control or influence of these evil spirits. Jesus had restored her life. This is who we're talking about. And, you know, there are those who assume that maybe this is this might be the Mary who... You know, we look at the scripture, we see these nameless, immoral women. You know, we read in the gospel stories. But what I find interesting in all these stories that relate to immoral women, there are no names mentioned to them, not one. It's as if God is concerned with conveying his grace and mercy by, by demonstrating their omission of their names. I find that interesting. God is so merciful and personable. He says, you know, I'm not going to mention your name. I mean, let me give you some examples. There's a woman who Jesus met at the well, who had been married five different times and was living with somebody. Can anybody tell me her name? No, huh? There's a woman caught in adultery. They're getting ready to stone her, and Jesus comes on the scene, and he saves her. What was her name? Interesting, huh? God's gracious. He's merciful. The difference with Mary, though, is she was possessed. She wasn't caught in an act of immorality. Mary strikes me as a type of person who understands what it's like to be a recipient of God's grace. And far too often, we're ready for God's forgiveness and deliverance. And once we receive the, uh, the benefits... We soon forget what God has done for us, don't we? Mary isn't one of those people. She was there when Jesus taught the people. She no doubt saw countless people made whole by Jesus. She was there when Jesus was brutalized and hung on the cross. And here she is at the very end, devoted to Him. And here she is. We find her at the tomb. And she's seemingly not alone. In the other Gospels, she's there with a few other women, seemingly, who have been following Jesus. John, for some reason, omits the other women. Doesn't mention them by name. He solely focuses on Mary. Why? Why does he do that? Well, let me give you uh, at least one possibility. First of all, Mary Magdalene is, is mentioned in all four Gospel accounts. However, it's only here in John... Where John, he gives us a more detailed account regarding Mary and her encounter with the Lord. In the other accounts, it appears that several of the women were all going to the tomb to properly bury the body of Jesus. Again, if you remember, when they interned the body of Jesus, it was on the eve of the Sabbath. Therefore, there wasn't enough time for a proper burial. Now. The discrepancy as you read the other accounts with the other women is you read the other stories. The angels say, hey, he is risen. He's not here. Go tell the disciples. Go tell Peter. I mean, and you read the women fall down. They're prostrate. This is a powerful event. And yet Mary's version is a lot different than the version they received. They received. Mary thinks some for some reason that his body had been taken and she tells Peter and John, hey, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. Now, either she was there but didn't understand what the angel said. Or two, she couldn't accept their narrative or what I think proves to be the best possibility is they had all planned to get to the garden there at the tomb together. That would be no different than let's say five or six of us say, we're going to go play basketball downtown LA. Well, we might get all in one car and go, but maybe we're all going to go separately. And I think that's what happened. I think they, they arranged the meeting at the tomb. They said, you know what? We're going to meet there. Let's all meet there. And Mary happens to be the first one there. She had beat everybody because what does the passage say? She was there while it was yet dark. The other woman get there was daylight, the breaking of the dawn. And again, John is the only one who gives us this version. And she arrives and notices that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Iro, That's the Greek word that says the stone actually had been, in the Greek, it had been lifted up and rolled away. To be removed from its place. In Matthew 28:2, 28, 28, it tells us that an angel descended from heaven and rolled back the stone from the door, which is interesting in and of itself. Why? Because the chief priests and Pharisees are concerned over the words of Jesus. What did Jesus say? After three days, I will rise. Their fear was that his disciples would come by night and steal away the body. And so what do they do? They implored Pilate to secure the tomb. You pick this up in Matthew 27. Why is this important? Why is this important? Well, Roman law was very harsh and unforgiving. Roman laws stipulate that once they placed a seal over something and that seal was broken, it was punishable by death. If Roman soldiers fell asleep or they didn't protect the seal, It was punishable by death. The whole regiment would die. Not just that one soldier, the whole regiment. Roman law was harsh. And that's the reason why the Jews requested aid from the Romans. Because they had the fear of Rome on their side. Yet we're told in Matthew (laughs) 28.3. Again, these are Roman soldiers, folks. We're told in Matthew 28.3 that the countenance of the angel was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. In the very next verse, it says, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Like dead men. This isn't a light matter. These are Rome's finest. They're the green berets of the Roman Empire, and they faint like dead men at the sight of one angel. What would scare you so bad that you would faint? You ever think about that? I mean, growing up, I mean, I've watched the horror movies and I get, I would get pretty terrified. There's, you know, as you get older, you go, okay, I kind of outgrew that. But is there anything in your mind that you would think, man, that would scare the tart of me. I'd, I'd pass out, you know, and I'm a grown man. There aren't too many things that do frighten me. I think we all have some phobia, but I, I think and I really began to think about this. I think the supernatural would, I think it would because it's Supernatural. It's not something we're used to. And we know what happens next in Matthew twenty-eight eleven. The guards went and told the chief priest all that had happened. They got up. Man, we saw this angel. We passed out. They went to go talk to the establishment, to the, the chief priests and to the Jews. And what do they do? They bribe the guards with a large amount of money to say that Jesus' disciples came at night. And stole away the body. They created the narrative. What's, you know what's interesting to me? Is there's no reference to the Jews saying, Hey, could this be true? Let's investigate this matter. Maybe this guy is the Messiah. But we don't read that, do we? These folks are more concerned about protecting themselves. And squashing this movement. And so they offer money to the guards. And I'll tell you what's sad about this, that this is the religious establishment bribing the non-believer. Pretty heavy. They're telling the non-believer, this is hush money. Pretty sad. Again, Mary seems to think someone has taken the body of our Lord and she locates both Peter and John. And they must have been close by and she knew where they were at. And something else to think about. What what was that like for Peter? What was he going through since he denied Jesus those three times? The, The last image we have of Peter before the crucifixion is his denial. And he departs, weeping bitterly. Peter, the one who famously said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The one who said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And what did Jesus say? You will. You're going to die me three times. And that's the last image we get of Peter before this day. And what was Peter going through that whole time? I guarantee you his heart ached. He saw his master brutally, brutally murdered. And he remembers denying him. What was that like for him those three days? I think he he was living a hell. I guarantee you he was. I'm sure he didn't know where to retreat to. Where would you go? You know the disciples are there, but would you go return with them? We know he stayed with John. Man, I don't know about you, but I want to hide myself. I wouldn't want to show my face to anybody. Notice verse 3. Peter therefore went out. And the other disciple. And were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. And the other disciple. hmm, John outran Peter. And came to the tomb first. Now this is almost comical to me. I'm sorry. But that's the way my mind works. Here's John at 90 years old. Saying hey I remember I outran Peter. That's his way of boasting. You know, I could still, you know, I, I beat the old man. Um, I guess it was John's way again saying he was the younger of the two and the fastest. Yet it comes with a purpose. Notice verse five. Verse five says, and he stooping down, looking in and in saw the linen clothes lying there. Yet he did not go in. So here's John, man, he's huffing and puffing, gets to the tomb and he stops. He's like, I'm not going in. He could see from an angle. He can look and can see the grave cloths, but he's not going in. He stops. He's the one that, he's the first one to get there. He only sees the garments, but there's a sense of hesitancy on his part. In verse six, it says, "Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Peter saw the linen clothes lying there. Peter doesn't say, hey, John, why aren't you going in? Why did you stop? Do you see something in there? I shouldn't go in there. Is there a warning? He doesn't say nothing. But what does Peter do? Man, like a bull in a china shop, he just charges through. And goes right inside. Again, interesting how John employs the word for seeing and saw in this chapter. In verse 1, Mary saw the stone had been taken away. In verse 5, it says, John stooped down and saw the linen clothes lying there. It's the Greek word blepo. And it means just that. They saw. It's a, it's a visual perception. They see. However, in verse 6, it's a different word altogether. It's the word Fiorero. Fiorero. It means Peter looked critically. He looked carefully. He was examining. Little different than John. He said, man, I'm, he's he's inquisitive. Something's not right. In verse 8, it, it's a, a different word as well, altogether. And we see a progression of these different types of words. Peter, it appears, is assessing the scene. Mary still thinks that someone took the body. And there should be evidence of that there. But Peter's there. He's processing. He's assessing. Again, something's not right. Why is a handkerchief folded the way it is in a different place? And why is this important? And I'll I'll go back to that in a few moments. In verse 8, it says, Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first Went in also, and noticed, and he saw and believed. He went in, and he saw the headdress, and he believed. Again, he uses a different word for saw here. It's the word aido. It means to acquire knowledge by perception. It was an epiphany to him. He realized he is risen. He is not here. He visually saw and came to understand what had transpired, and he believed. It all came together for John. Peter, however, is a different story. It doesn't say that about him, does it? John is the only one that the scripture says believes. And what did they see? His body came out of the grave clothes. What they stumbled upon was an orderly scene. The grave clothes were wrapped the way Jews would wrap the deceased. They would take a sheet, place the body in the sheet, and they would begin covering the body with spices. Why spices? Well, because there would be odor. The bacteria that used to work for you is now working against you. It's a matter of time before you're going to start to smell. So they would wrap the body in spices. And in Jesus' case, we know from the previous chapter that Nicodemus, mixed over a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes and had them placed over his body. They would have the head wrapped separately and one of the reasons that they wanted to ensure that they would wrap the jaw shut. They would then wrap the body, the arms, the limbs, the knees, the feet and so forth. Then they would tuck the sheet around the body ensuring that the spices would not fall out. And what they saw was everything I just described for you, except one thing, the body. So in my mind, I can only imagine here's a body laying there, but it's only a sheet and spices. It's as if this thing deflated and that's all you have. And that's what they were seeing. Now, I think if somebody wanted to steal the body, they would have taken the whole thing. Wouldn't they? Why in the world would I just take the sheets off and carry body away? That wouldn't make sense. And if I did steal a body. Then I think it wouldn't be so orderly, would it? It'd be a mess. And that's not what they saw. As a matter of fact, I think as they looked at the handkerchief or the head wrapping. I believe it was tucked the way It was wrapped. Because if Jesus had taken it off. Then you would have seen it probably lying flat. I think it was folded the way his head was wrapped. So where did the body go? Where did the body go? I'm sure this is what's eating away at Peter. Because he's, again, look at the scene. He's examining what is going on here. And I'm sure he's perplexed. You know, I visited the tomb in Israel. It's hewn out of solid rock. The tomb actually belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. He was a rich man. He was also a disciple of Jesus, yet secretly, as John 19 tells us. Jesus was basically buried in a borrowed tomb. It's not very big, of course, and the reason is because it's a tomb. Um, And it's very close to where Jesus would have been crucified. And what's interesting being there is seeing people from all over the world lined up, waiting to go in. And I remember when we went, I, I honestly, I refused to go in immediately. And not that I was skeptical, but I just didn't want to be like the average tourist, you know, kind of checking off my itinerary. I sat back and I just wanted to see the people and, and just take in the whole scene and try to envision what the gospel share about um, that day. The interesting thing is, you go in, there's a. A little sign says he is risen. He's not here. Folks, he is not there. He's currently sitting at the right hand of the father. Interestingly, again, we don't get the same response from Peter that we get from John. All we get is silence. Now, again, to be fair to Peter, no one believed prior to this day. None of them believed. None no of them believed he would resurrect from the dead. Look at the next verse, verse 9. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. I appreciate John's sincerity here. He is incredibly transparent in regards to the knowledge of the scripture. He says they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. He is brutally, brutally honest. You know, uh, someone asked me a question about scripture and sometimes my mind goes, OK, where am I going to start with this? Where am I going to go? And John is saying we just didn't know the scripture. We we missed this. We didn't understand. We all didn't understand and we didn't understand the enormity of it all. The Jews believed in a general resurrection. For example, there's a reference in Daniel. There's also John eleven twenty three, 23, where you know, the story Lazarus has passed away and Jesus is having this conversation with Martha. And and she tells Martha uh, that her brother Lazarus, you know, who had died, will rise again. And what was Martha's um, response? Verse 24. Oh, Jesus, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at that last day. She understood, like everyone else. That there was a general resurrection, but what she and everyone else didn't understand or take an account for was the Messiah would have a physical resurrection. They all missed it. They all missed it. Psalm sixteen nine says, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices, my flesh also will rest in hope. Verse ten for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your holy one to see corruption. This was not yet fully understood as John attested to. But looking back now as a 90-year-old man, it was crystal clear. Crystal clear. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. Interesting perspective that John provides for us here. In the other gospel accounts, the women arrive at the tomb and they are met with angels and their message is he is risen go and tell his disciples do you realize they never enter the tomb they had never gone in they go back and Mary somehow as i mentioned earlier misses their announcement she's she's kind of ahead of the pack she's already told peter and john that someone's taken the body they take off And she's playing catch-up. So if I can somewhat diagram this for you. Here's Mary and here's the women. And here's the tomb. She's ahead of the pack. She sees the tomb rolled away. She thinks someone stole the body. She leaves to go see Peter and John. Here the women arrive and they get the announcement from the angels. She tells Peter and John they take off to the tomb so now they're ahead and now here's Mary catching up to Peter and John and here come the women looking for Peter and John. So... They get to the tomb. Well, guess what? There's no angels there. As they stoop in and look. You don't see the part where, hey, he is risen. They see grave cloths. And here's Mary. She gets there. And she's weeping. So you can see she's kind of missing it all. Because she's ahead of the pack. Everyone else is kind of where they should be. She is trying to play catch up. I think it's kind of comical to me in my mind. But um, kind of interesting. She's ahead of the pack. She's unaware of the angel's pronouncement. And again, she's missing out in all the action. And here we find her weeping. And again, Peter and John see an empty tomb. Mary's outside. She's weeping. Kaleo. It's the word kaleo. It's it's the term to to wail. I remember when my, my wife's niece was murdered. And to hear the women wailing in the house still brings chills to me. That's kind of the, what we're talking about here. She, she's had a pretty tough weekend. She loves her Lord. And she's wailing. She's sobbing uncontrollably. And Peter and John aren't there. And we don't know if they spoke to her before they left. We don't see that. Maybe she arrived soon after they left. Again, we don't know. But you kind of get the sense that Mary's been through quite a bit again in the last few days to see her Lord treated barbarically the way she did. And now she's looking for the body and the body's been taken away. She's boiling over with raw emotion and she's weeping and she finally has the courage to look in to the tomb. Verse 12, and she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had been laying. Poor Mary. She's probably had the worst few days of her life. Yet, what she doesn't know, and fortunately what we know, is that actually this is going to probably be the, the greatest day of her life. This day is going to eclipse every other day that she's ever had. did not you find it interesting that she's not impressed with our heavenly guests? The Roman soldiers faint. The other women fall on their faces. She's not impressed. And notice what they say. Verse 13. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they have laid him. Again, what a different message. The angels aren't saying, hey, Mary, um, he's risen. He's not here. Go tell the disciples. No, woman, why are you weeping? And I love her response because they have taken away my Lord. My Lord. They've taken him. I can't find him. Do you know? I can just hear the plea. They've taken my Lord. There's no one else who sits on the throne of her heart. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Is he your master passion? Have you lost touch with how much he has delivered you from? Now, when she had said this, verse 14, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus had been eavesdropping. He had heard the whole thing. Mary doesn't know it's Jesus. He somehow veils his identity temporarily. And he does this as well in Luke chapter 24 to the disciples who are on the road to Emmaus. They were saddened over the recent events and Jesus comes alongside and he begins to open the scripture to them. He begins to share beginning with Moses and the prophets, the things that pertain to the Messiah. And what do they say? Their hearts burned within them. And when did they begin to realize it was him? When they began to eat broke bread, he blessed it. They realized it was him. And what do they do? Man, they immediately hightailed it back to Jerusalem. And they go back into this room that we're going to see in a few moments. They're all there. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, not Jesus, the gardener, but one of the gardeners. Said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Again, notice Jesus had been standing there listening to the whole conversation. And he asks a similar question, but adds, whom are you seeking? Not what are you seeking, but whom are you seeking? And he knows. And she assumes he might be one of the gardeners. And notice what she says. I, I will, it's my Lord. I will take him away. I'll, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. I will drag him away. Here's a woman. She's willing to carry a man away. You're talking about a body wrapped in a hundred pounds of spice. Tell me where he's at. I'll take him. I'll take him away. Love bears all things. Love will do the impossible. She is willing as a woman to carry him away. What love she had for her Lord. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni. Which is to say, teacher. At this point, Jesus reveals himself to her first audibly. Then visually, and I can only imagine how he must have said Mary in his own special way. But I also wonder, I, this is me, but when he delivered her from the seven evil spirits, I wonder if he called her Mary. Come here. I wonder if it's the same voice, the same tenor. I tell you what, when you've been delivered that way. You will know his voice. And she responds with, Rabboni. Again, this title is more respectful than rabbi. It means great, my great master. You know, this term is only found in one other place. You guys remember blind Bartimaeus? He's on the road. He's begging. And he hears Jesus is coming through. And he says, oh, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And and Jesus... Answers and says to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, great master. And again, it's an enduring term. Master, that I may receive my sight. Again, it's more than a teacher. It's the highest level. Mary doesn't say teacher or Lord. She says, Rabboni, great master. What a picture set before us. She's gotten up early, as it were, in the dark. Looking for her master. And Jesus said to her in verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Jesus says to her, don't cling to me. It's not in the sense of don't touch me. Because we know later on in the week, Jesus offers his body to Thomas. Hey, come on, touch me, handle me. So we know that's what he means. He's not saying... Hey, stay away from me, you sinner. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, please, Mary, let me go. You're clinging on to me. She's just excited. Are you excited about the Lord? Do you get lost with the distractions of our world? Mary's in love with her Lord. And she doesn't want to let him go. Do you blame her? Then he says something interesting. He he tells Mary to go to my brethren and tell them I'm going to my father and your father, my God and your God. He no longer sees them as friends, but as family. He is describing to Mary this new relationship they're about to experience. Remember, before Jesus, they didn't relate to God as their father. It was Jehovah. But it was never this relationship of a father in heaven. Never. He is introducing a new relationship. Mary Magdalene came, verse 18, told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that He had spoken these things to her. Mary had conveyed how she had seen the Lord and the language suggests that it was more than just sight. It describes for us an experience. She had an experience of the Lord beyond than just sight. And she shared the things the Lord wanted her to share. But in Mark's gospel, it tells us, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, you know what they, they, their response? They did not believe. This is Mary. Remember, she was possessed. Maybe that reputation still... You know, they thought, you know, I don't think I can entirely trust her. Amazing. What was it like for Mary, I wonder? I'm surprised she didn't rebuke them. She, you guys are fools. I've seen him. You guys don't know. And I wonder what Peter was feeling like prior to this event. Again, as I mentioned earlier, all those things are going through his head. Shows up at the tomb. Body's missing. Then the women tell him that they've seen him. What the angels have communicated. And specifically we're told in Mark 16, uh, 16 7, how the women were instructed by the angel how Jesus is going to Galilee and they were to convey a message to the disciples and to Peter. Called him out by name. Peter was singled out by name by the angel. Now, imagine how you'd feel. You're the one who denied the Lord, and now the women are telling you, not only is he alive, and the angels are telling us he's alive, but the angels are calling you out by name, Peter. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Man, I'd, I'd want to hide. Why are they calling me by name? We're not Matthew, Bartholomew. Why is it just me? Imagine that. Imagine you're Peter. verse 19 in the same day at evening being the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the jews jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them peace be with you or peace unto you notice they gathered together behind shut doors the greek says locked doors that's the indication why for fear of the jews and the romans remember the jews had bribed the guards To circulate the story that it was the disciples who stole away the body. That news was going around. It was circulating. Hey, the disciples stole the body. They're in fear. They're in this room. They're like, what are we going to do? They're accusing us of stealing the body. Could you imagine the things that they were trying to sort out? They had the the news of the women. uh, That they had experienced the, the conversation with the angel and what they heard. And they heard from other disciples, the guys who were going to Emmaus, they heard them speak. And they, they saw the Lord. And to top it off, there was a campaign suggesting that they had stolen the body. These are difficult things for them to process. Things weren't looking good. And the disciples, as the language indicates, were in a state of terror. They were in fear. The Greek word is phobos. It's where we get our English word for Phobia. Think about it. their master was unjustly condemned and butchered. Judas committed suicide three days earlier. The religious establishment was flexing their muscles. And because um, they didn't have very many options, you can't but help to get the sense that they were being squeezed. The pressure was on. Now, I don't know about you. Fear does things to a person. It affects the way you think. Don't we go to the place where we think the worst possible thing could happen to us? And the other folks in in that room aren't helping. They don't know what to do. There are no answers. They don't know what to, where to go. They're panicking. And I could just I can envision the disciples sitting there and they don't know what to do. They're weighing out all their options and there are none. But then we read Jesus came and stood in their midst. And what did he say to them? Peace. Peace unto you. The language is, the language just says that Jesus came. Actually, it says in the original language, came Jesus. Very short. Came in. He just materialized in front of them. Well, where was he? How did he come in? The doors were locked. He just materializes before them. Again, this is quite a day for these folks. First, we have a dead man. Second, we have his, this empty tomb. Third, he appears to some. Fourth, he comes in the room. Jesus violated almost every law of nature. Now I'm to, I'll be speaking about that in a few moments. The master came in their in their hour of despair. He will come in our hour of despair, and notice, locked doors are not a problem for him. There is no obstacle too difficult for him to come in your life. What a great lesson for us to know. We have a master who will materialize in our time of great need. And he says, peace unto you. Interesting, that word for peace is a type of word used in the context of war. To bring peace in the midst of war. They were battling with fear. They were warring with fear. And Jesus comes in and brings peace. You know, what did Isaiah state about Jesus? The Prince of Peace. He brings peace. Folks, there's nothing in this world that will give you peace. Nothing outside of Christ. Nothing. You come to Jesus, you will know peace. True peace. He's not an apparition or a figment of your imagination. In the very next verse, what does he do? Notice verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. He showed them his hands and his side. And notice they were glad. They were glad when they saw the Lord. The word is aido. Again, it means to perceive from knowledge, to, to know. And I find that assuring. He's saying, look, guys, Matthew, look, handle me, man. Touch me. Look at the side, look at the wound. I mean, it's quite a shocker. You're sitting there. I'm alive. Handle me. And says so they were glad. In Luke's gospel, it tells us that they were terrified because they had thought they had seen a ghost. Then it says they marvelled at him. They marvelled at him. Well, they marvelled because afterwards he ate fish. How does someone just appear and all of a sudden eat fish? They know he died. He's eating. Dead people don't eat. Verse twenty one. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Jesus commissions the disciples towards the work of ministry. Jesus employs interesting words here. He says, As the Father sent me apostolo, one with official authority, I also send you Pempo, one. One under authority. One who is sent out. It's an authority given to us. And that's important for us to know as followers of Christ. We don't operate under our own authority. It is God-given. It implies responsibility. We, all of us, as believers, are heavenly representatives. It's no different than a five-star general giving orders to a regiment, is it? That, that five-star general has authority. Or a Supreme Court justice as he sits on the bench and he he dispenses law. He has all authority of the United States government behind him. How much more us as believers, we have the authority of heaven behind us. Verse 22. And we had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Receive the Holy Spirit. Well, you know, honestly, the language is pretty complex here. I'll be brief. It means receive the Holy Spirit. I can't get any more simpler than that. But yet you have people out there who want to be super spiritual. They think they have an in. They think that they have a secret knowledge. It just means that. Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit. They They convolute the simplicity of Scripture and they make it mean more what the Scripture says. The phrase, He breathed on them, occurs only in one place. It's right here in the New Testament. Right here. It's the word infielso. And it means to blow, to breathe. I like this, to inflate. To inflate. Jesus breathes on them. And they inflate. The Septuagint, which is... The Old Testament, translated in the Greek, uses this word only one time. In Genesis 2-7, after God had formed Adam, it tells us that he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Same word. Isn't that interesting? And here Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus imparted to the disciples the Holy Spirit. It is my opinion at this point. Again, my opinion, they became born again. I mean, what does the scripture say? First Corinthians fifteen forty-five. It is written, the first man Adam became a, lot, a living being; the last Adam, just speaking about Jesus Christ, became a life-giving Spirit. He breathed into them life. They had just they had just experienced the born again experience. They're born again. Verse twenty-three. If we forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Well, uh, what does this mean? It means as a church, I can tell you your sins are forgiven and I don't forgive you. I'll tell you what it doesn't mean, folks. I'm being funny here. It doesn't mean as a church that I'm saying that I can't forgive your sins. There are some churches that, that hold people in bondage. They'll say, no, 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 your sins aren't forgiven until you do this. That's not what it's saying. That's not what the scripture is telling us. Only God forgives sins. For example, you remember the story of the man who was let down through the roof. He happened to be a paralytic. And Jesus said to the paralytic in, in Mark chapter 2, verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And what happens after that? The scribes are listening intently. And what, was, what were they reasoning in their hearts? Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they were correct. What Jesus was demonstrating is that he is in fact God. But their assumption was correct. Only God forgives sins. What is Jesus trying to tell us then? He is saying that we have authority to proclaim assurance. Assurance of what? that their sins were forgiven or the authority to proclaim your sins are not forgiven. Well, how does that work? Well, it works like this. If you've been sharing the gospel with someone, you know, you're saying, Hey, Jesus is the only way he's willing to forgive your sins. And that person says, you know, I want to accept Christ. I agree with you. I am a sinner. I want forgiveness. I could say your sins. I can, I can say that with the authority of the scripture, Your sins are forgiven. But if that person says, you know, I don't want Christ. You know, I think I'm a good person. You know, I I think there's a different way. I have the authority to proclaim your sins are not forgiven. That's what he's saying here. And yet, how many churches abuse this verse to manipulate people, to control people? Hmm. Folks, you can be forgiven for murder, indecency. You can be forgiven for adultery, homosexuality. But there's one sin that's unpardonable. It's the sin of rejection. You reject the Son of God. That is the unpardonable sin. And I can say that with all authority. Verse 24. Now Thomas, called a twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Here we have doubting Thomas, Thomas, the skeptic. He says the only way he's going to believe, believe if he physically touches the Lord's wounds. Otherwise, he refuses to believe. Isn't it interesting how he chooses how he would believe? Think about that. That's like the skeptic. Well, I'm not going to believe. And, you know, you've seen uh, uh, Darwinian evolutionists, the skeptic. Well, produce God to me. Ah, I got to see God. And, and Thomas is kind of doing the same thing here. He said, I'm not going to believe unless I see. Look, there's a difference between being a skeptic, but also someone who is, who is honest in their assessment. There is a big difference. Notice verse 26. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut. In other words, they were locked and stood in the midst and said, peace unto you. Eight days went by. And what was that like for Thomas to have heard all the disciples and all the women that they had seen the Lord? And yet he is the only one who hadn't seen him. Where had he been? How was he affected by the crucifixion? What was it like for Thomas those eight days? What was it like for him? And then he said to to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving. But what? Believing. Come on, Thomas. Here I am. Handle me. Touch me. And what does Thomas do? And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, I don't need anything else. I don't need to touch you. I see it. I believe. I believe. You know what's interesting about reading Thomas's reaction? I think he really wanted to believe. I think he he just was bursting. I think he was just ready. Everyone else saw him. I hear the accounts. I'm ready. If I just see him, I need to see him. The moment he sees him, he says, I believe my Lord and my God. You know, funny story about this verse. I've been sharing with a Jehovah's witness. And, you know, they don't believe that Jesus is God. They believe he's he's an angel. Right. And I show this verse. I go, What does this verse mean to you? Looked at it for a while. My Lord, my God, I can see him. Oh, it's Easy. It's a reaction that, oh my God. That's that's what he's saying there. I go, Are you kidding? <laughs> then why didn't Jesus correct him? Why didn't he say, Hey, you speak blasphemies? Didn't say that. Doesn't correct him. What does that mean? It means he's right. My Lord and my God. Pretty powerful. Pretty powerful. Jesus reached out to Thomas at exactly where he was. But notice what Jesus says in verse 29. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He says, blessed are those who have seen and yet believed. Jesus is saying to those who believe, pusteo is a word. Those who are persuaded or entrust their lives to the person of Christ without physical evidence are truly the blessed ones. Why? Because they trust the word of the living God. That's why. You have not seen. But you have heard. You examine the evidence. You know. um, The skeptic. Will tell you. Oh. Miracles. You guys think. You know. Believe in miracles. You guys are just. You're not very smart. Okay. Because the moment you you say miracles. you, You inject God. You know, you say this, this, and that. Oh, it's God. It's a miracle. Okay, it's God. Well, here's the problem. It's like, for example, Richard Dawkins. You look at the virgin birth. Oh, you guys believe that? Really? A virgin conceived. And to the naturalist, they know how things work. They think we don't know how things work. But if you look at Mary's account, when she had been given the news that she was... Going to be visited from the power on high. What was her reaction? What? How can these things be? I have not known a man. What does that imply? She knows the birds and the bees. She wasn't less knowledgeable. She understood the laws of nature. So she understood. She wasn't ignorant. And yet we get so intimidated by the skeptic. Because we think that they know so much. Yet. I can say that I know how things work. And when something happens miraculously, yeah, I can say that's the Lord because I know how the laws of nature work. So if anything, I understand you don't, you explain to me why a person is healed when they are in the hospital and someone's prayed over them. They can't answer that. And yet when you, you know, when they talk about evolution and they talk about punctuated equilibrium, they go, Oh, Oh, this evolution happened instantly. is not that kind of a miracle? Isn't that a myth? Isn't that a reach? Show me the proof. They can't. Yeah, so the funny part to me is they demand evidence from us. But the moment you demand evidence from them, they feel like they're exempt. Folks, challenge them. Turn it around on them. Say, you know what? You give me the evidence. Don't give me what your hypothesis is. Give me the evidence. If you're skeptical about Christ, that's okay. Again, as I said earlier, I don't expect you to be gullible. However, you need to be fair and at least examine the evidence. John wrote this gospel for a specific reason. And I'll end here. Verse 30. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and, th- and that believing, you may have life in his name. What is John asking of you? Examine. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? The word of God. You could be a skeptic. That's okay. But be fair. Examine the word of God. I don't expect anybody here to be gullible. Matter of fact, we expect you to examine the scripture. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we come to you again in Jesus' name. Lord, thank you for just your word, Lord. The clarity in your word. But also, Lord, that you're so personable. Lord, you've reached out to to Mary, to Peter thomas lord and many others and you meet us exactly where we're at and lord i pray for anybody here lord maybe they they haven't come to you and maybe lord they want to respond and as we pray if you're here tonight and you want to make that commitment you want to accept christ into your heart you can just repeat this simple prayer of faith and just repeat after me father I come to you in Jesus' name. I acknowledge I'm a sinner in need of you saving me. I accept Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. Help me to walk after you, Lord, all the days of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.